2: Thank you for tuning in to the New Books Network, the African-American Studies channel. My name is Brittany Edmonds, and I'm very happy to be speaking with Hawa Allen today about her new book, Insurrection, Rebellion, Civil Rights, and the Paradoxical State of Black Citizenship. Thank you for being here today.
0: Thank you very much for having me.
2: So I wanted to get started with a very easy question. I was just curious if you could tell us a bit just about the book and also how you came to writing it.
0: Right. So, uh, this book, Insurrection, uh, basically focuses on the Insurrection Act of 1807 as the sort of legal history aspect of the book. Um, so, the Insurrection Act allows the president to deploy federal troops and or federalize the national National Guard in order to suppress some sort of domestic violence, uh, dem- you know, or unrest within the United States nationally. Right. Um, so, this situation um, is authorized either at the request of the state governor or um, pursuant to a unilateral decision of the president. And, you know, finding that the, the civil unrest essentially has gotten to the point where the state is unwilling or unable to act, and, uh, you know, the constitutional rights of citizens are. Um, at risk because of that uh, unwillingness or inability. So that having been said, I stumbled upon the act in the process of trying to understand why it had taken the federal government so long to respond to the Hurricane Katrina crisis. Um, So when I was looking into that event, I found that the then governor of Louisiana, uh, Kathleen Blanco, had made a formal request of the George W. Bush administration at that time to provide federal aid under the Stafford Act. So, and that's legislation that, you know, sets forth terms for facilitating federal help to state officials in the event of a man-made or natural disaster. So the request would have, you know, covered any aid provided by federal troops dispatched, you know, by the executive, but George W. Bush hesitated to do so because, um, in his words, you know, he would have had to have send in tro- the federal troops, quote unquote, unarmed if he had done so under the authority of the Stafford Act. Um, but what he was really referring to is the fact that the, under the Stafford Act, those troops wouldn't have been authorized to assume, you know, the powers of local law enforcement, like the the ability to make searches, seizures, arrest suspects, et cetera. And for that reason, Bush wanted to invoke the Insurrection Act in response to the Hurricane Katrina crisis, um, and that would have allowed those, you know, dispatched troops, you know, to um, engage in those sorts of, you know, local law enforcement powers under the guise of the Insurrection Act. So um, Bush claimed that he was concerned about the rumors on the ground that New Orleans had erupted into violence. Um, These are, you know, reports that turned out to be largely exaggerated and even false. Um, You know, these were reports of rooftop snipers, violent armed gangs, and this idea that the makeshift shelter, the Superdome, became this sort of domain of murder and rape. Um, And, you know, these, these are these were rumors that you know, in, in the immediate aftermath of the disaster were being um, spread by the governor and even the, the then mayor, Ray Nagin himself, um, to the point where in a press conference, uh, Governor Blanco referred to certain National Guard troops that she was borrowing from nearby states to help respond to the Hurricane Katrina crisis, um, ha- saying that they have M-16s that are locked and loaded, and the troops know how to shoot to kill. So all that said, uh, Governor Blanco did not want George W. Bush to invoke the Insurrection Act because that would have meant that the president would have been commander-in-chief of the military response on the ground, and she wanted to retain that role as governor, because typically with the state National Guard, it's the governor of a given state who is the commander-in-chief you know, of, of, that, of those forces domestically uh, or within the, the territory of, 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 that st- of that governor's state, right? Um, so essentially the, the argument that they had back and forth about whether to in, the insurrection actually should be invoked or not lasted for several days. And in this time, I think we all remember the televised crisis and, you know, people you know, uh, finding, uh, shelter in, in attics or on top of roofs, you know, waving for help and et cetera. So this was the, this back and forth that was occurring between the governor and then uh, President Bush, um, and then Bush, finally relented, and then dispatched the federal troops under the Stafford Act, you know, solely, even though he could have invoked the Insurrection Act unilaterally. And he said he was reluctant to do so, um, you know, according to his memoir, Decision Points, because he said that a white male Republican president sending federal troops over the objection of a white female Democratic governor and declaring insurrection in a largely African-American city in the Deep South, would unleash holy hell. So you know, just to wrap that portion up, I mean, that's how I was introduced to this Insurrection Act. So I was wondering, what is the what is the Insurrection Act? Why haven't I heard about it? And I decided to do more research on it, and found that even though I didn't know much about the act itself, um, that I knew very much about the sort of incidents in U.S. history, particularly African American history, um, where the act was was central. Um, you know, I, I'll give you a few examples, but the most recent uh, was the L.A. riots, you know, following the acquittal, acquittal of certain officers involved in uh, the Rodney King beating. And that was invoked by George H.W. Bush. Um, it was also used to respond to riots that broke out in D.C., Chicago and Baltimore after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in 1968. Um and you know, as well as the Detroit riots of nineteen forty-three and nineteen sixty-seven, but um, interestingly enough, uh, it was used, you know, around that time in the uh, during the civil rights movement to enforce civil rights um, of civil rights protesters. In one case, to march from Selma to Montgomery. And then again, to enforce the rights of black students who are looking to desegregate public schools in Alabama, Mississippi, and Arkansas. So those famous standoffs with, you know, um, you know George Wallace, right? And you know those iconic images of black students being uh, sort of uh, ushered into schools or sort of guarded as they walked into certain public schools. Um, they, I mean, this was this was the Insurrection Act was central to that to those. Um, to those um, iconic and historical events. Uh, There was even one military historian, as I went back and looked, who associated the uh, dispatch of federal troops to suppress the Nat Nat Turner Rebellion, um, you know, as an Insurrection Act invocation. And I think you can arguably say, based on the presidential proclamation that was issued by Abraham Lincoln to sort of dispatch federal troops to Fort Sumter, which marked the start of the Civil War, you can argue, I think, that that was also an insurrection act invocation. So there's all these, you know, this is not the sort of act that you, um, you know, make use of every day. I mean, this is something, this is an exceptional use of governmental power, but it really struck me that despite the fact that this is, you know, such, you know, sort of extraordinary and sort of isolated sort of exercise, you know, um, of powers, you know, that's authorized under the act that, you know, there's this, market pattern that you see where for the most part you're seeing um, the uh, suppression of so-called race riots maybe I guess in the case of Nat Turner obviously that was a, a slave rebellion right um, on the one hand and on the other the sort of the enforcement of uh, the so the civil rights and constitutional rights of African Americans um, so in this book, I, I go through, you know, the various incidents more or less chronologically and discuss them, you know, with this, you know, other sort of personal narrative um, and perhaps certain, you know, philosophical insights and things like that uh, to, to sort of uh, uh, illustrate the, the, the larger claims I'm making about the... Um, sort of precar the precarity of black citizenship as as illustrated through the the uses of this act um, and how you know the the um, how these flashpoints uh, throughout history marked by the insurrection act um, essentially you know show that there's been a sort of ongoing and bloody battle to fully integrate black Americans into the larger c- citizenry um, and it's a it's a narrative that I thought uh, would was pretty, you know, um, remarkable considering the sort of platitudes about progress that we keep hearing with respect to, you know, um, uh, you know the 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 full integration of Black Americans into the as citizens in the, of the United States. So,
2: yeah, you know, I mean, you kind of answered my my next question, and I really enjoyed hearing hearing just about how your book came together, about how you're sort of seeing the Insurrection Act and its place in American history. But I was curious, you might want to say more about this, and you don't have to, because I'll, I'll make this two questions. Um, but my, my next question was going to be, you know, why is the Insurrection Act so important to understanding African American history, and also sort of contemporary African American life in this country? So that, that you kind of answered that, but you might want to put a finer point on that. And then just you know your last comments kind of about progress um and the many platitudes that circulate about it you know part one of your book is is entitled progress uh in, in scare quotes um and so i wonder if you could say a bit about some of the sort of memoiristic writing in your book and how you're sort of chronicling your own relationship to black citizenship to the law um, and also how your sort of understanding of history shifts because I, I found that kind of you kind of narrate yourself as an adult you do go back to childhood but much of that narration is through the sort of Obama and and Trump presidencies and so I wonder if it, you know your under your self understanding changed or or what
0: you know so right so I mean in, with regard to progress you know that there there's a sort of sanitized uh, version of African American history where. There's this idea that you know, there's this um, progression from enslavement to freedom, and then you know, we have these speeches, uh, you know, these these heavily, um, I, I don't know if it's redacted or or sound soundbited <laughs> uh, uh, speeches of Martin Luther King Jr. that are you know pretty much you know at least from the level of the sort of colloquial uh, sort of sort of discussion of this history. Um, you know, highlights this, you know, this tale of progress, right? And uh, how, how so much, um, how, how many achievements have been made and how, you know, the, the, the moral arc is bending towards justice. And I'm not saying that's not true to a certain extent, but I think it, you know, especially in reviewing this history uh, with respect to Black citizenship in the United States, it, it, it seemed to me, you know, particularly looking at, through the lens of the Insurrection Act, that these sort of markers of progress were really, you know, in their own ways, concessions in an ongoing and bloody battle, right? Like, um, so, you know, I think it's fairly clear to most people that the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments were enacted after the Civil War, right? That's one obviously huge battle. Um, But it's less known, for example, that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed soon after George Wallace's famous stand in the schoolhouse door, right? And that was, you know, there was an Insurrection Act invocation um, that facilitated uh, the, the entry of, of, of school children in, into that particular school uh, in Alabama. And also that the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was passed soon after the, the Bloody Sunday battle on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, you know, and that marred the early attempt of civil rights protesters to march from Selma to Montgomery um so the insurrection act was also um you know a uh, a feature of, of that of that incident right you know following bloody sunday so it's just it's just remarkable to see at least from the standpoint of the law which is not everything right but it is of course where we get our formal entitlements right and uh f- with respect to you know black americans in the united states there's a way in which this idea of freedom is is sort of um is linked to these sort of legal protections and legal entitlements, right? But even when I look at these legal entitlements, entitlements, I see I don't necessarily see progress. I see more, um, you know, a, a, a sort of <laughs> a militaristic contest that required some sort of concession in order to to simply move forward and and so called preserve the union, right? Even at this at this late stage. So go ahead.
2: Oh, I I mean, if you have more to say, I mean, I guess the question I was going to ask, you know, as you're speaking is, you know, I'm still curious about whether or not your views of the United States changed as you wrote this book or as you did the research, because even just how you narrated your answer, you said, well, you know, I had certain ideas about the U.S. And then I went and sort of started tracing the history of this act. And so I'm curious about what that means for a sort of reading of black citizenship, because I mean yes, the bulk of American history is one in which black people haven't been afforded full rights. And, 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 you know, the amount of time that they have been is is relatively short, right? A ton of gains were made in a very short period of time. They're not fully complete, but we'll say post 68, we've seen a number of very fast um, social changes, political changes in the status of black life for many Americans, not all black Americans. Um, And so I'm curious, I'm curious about that first question, like, you know, did how how did you change? How did you change sort of from doing the research you did? Um, and then the second question I have is is related to that. And it's just about whether or not this is a kind of Trump era book, right? Where it seems like, I mean, it feels very much like it was written in that time where everything seemed like it was on fire all the time, you know, even when it wasn't. Um and so I wonder if, you know, sort of insurrection was in the air. It was kind of like Christmas in the air. And so I wonder. Yeah, I don't know. I just wonder, do you see this as like a Trump era book? Have your thoughts moved since then? How are you? And this is still, I guess, on that question of progress about how we should think about that as as black Americans. And I will show my hand and say that uh, I show my hand all the time in these interviews. But, you know, I am someone who believes that that black people have made a great deal of progress in this in this nation. Um, and that is not an unqualified statement, but that is a, that is a declarative statement that I believe in um, it's not popular in this current moment, so right, right. But, no, uh, yes. I wonder what you would say though.
0: Okay, so, uh, so I think you're talking about the, the, uh, as I was writing it, did I change my views or were my views sort of confirmed by the research and, and how did that process sort of unfold? So, um, really, I had done all of this research, you know, in terms of the legal history, uh, before you know, I'd, I'd written the book. So by the time I was writing the book, I wanted to write a book that would be um, sort of palatable to a a larger audience and one that, you know, anyone could pick up and understand. And uh, one thing that my editor suggested and which I enthusiastically sort of took the challenge to do was to incorporate uh, some, you know, and interweave some personal narrative with the legal history. Right. So that was, that was sort of the, 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 the structure Sort of preceded the execution in that sense. Um, So I, so I went about when I went about doing this. um, I think the way that I, I personally changed was that um, you know I, I, I viewed the the subject matter from you know both the outside in. I would Mm -hmm. say with respect to looking at it from the perspective of legal history, and then from the you know having to look at it from the inside out as you know the a narrator in the book who is a a black citizen of the united states and then B also a lawyer right so i have these two particular uh sort of um identities that puts me in a in a, in a sort of you know a particular relationship with this material and through that a lot of thematic i think ties came through in each chapter which I hope, and that was, you know, ultimately my attention when I was was looking at how to sort of interweave and suture like the personal and the and the political, if you want to call it that, but rather like the legal history, were uh, this sort of uh, a, a, a sort of underlying emotional content, right? So in the first chapter, the the theme is fear, right? The fear of slave insurrection, the fear of the enslaved person with respect to this, you know, this totalizing. And dehumanizing system that's been, uh, you know, architected around them. Uh, and looking at at my fears with respect to the uh, the first black president, which effectively I was I was sort of you know making a, an allusion to the the reaction to the election of Barack Obama being akin to the sort of you know um, this sort of underlying and simmering fear in larger white society that I was researching with respect to, you know, the slave codes, etc., of a, a, um, a slave insurrection or a black uprising. Right. So there, there was a lot of sort of parallels that I, that I uh, found um, and I, I found them by necessity again, because the structure sort of, you know, preceded the, the execution in a way. And I think that um, looking at uh, this history, not only in terms of the, the sort of um, sort of collection of names and dates and places and the collectivities of, you know, events that transpired, but trying to sort of illuminate them through the emotional content as well helped for me anyway, to create this sort of bridge between past and present to the extent that yes, you know, progress certainly is being made, right. There, The time, the times, you know, change, you know, the, the the different the characters are different the presidents are different you know the landscapes are different we have different formal, formal entitlements but there are these sort of underlying almost like primordial kinds of um i think sort of psychological i don't know if you want to call them ghosts <laughs> uh you know it's it's like a you know the, the it's like a i in the in the introduction i call them ghostly reassertions there's this way in which this you know this history that is not quite settled, not fully dealt with, sort of rears its ugly head through, you know, the current characters of the day. And we're still dealing with the same themes, notwithstanding, you know, the progress, which yes, I do put in quotes, right? So I talk about that in terms of fear. I talk about that in terms of cognitive dissonance. I talk about that in terms of this idea of groupthink and mob mob psychology. So I, I feel, you know, for me, I, I don't think I was necessarily... Um, going to be swayed in my rather, um, and I don't know if I would say call it pessimistic, but it's, it's really a little bit of a, you know, sarcastic, (laughs) uh, you know, pose when it comes to this notion of progress, right? I wasn't necessarily looking to be swayed, uh, uh, you know, away from that, that predisposition. But what was interesting to me is to see how uh, this these sort of sort of underlying and, and almost shadowy in a way uh sort of emotional uh, sort of dispositions can sort of uh, are inherited and, and transmitted through through generations and we have these you know f- we continue to have these flare-ups which can contain this sort of you know unresolved uh, sort of kernels you know of of those uh older events if 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 that makes sense
2: yeah, I mean, my question—it does all—all all of what you said is is really fascinating, and I—we I, are going to talk about the emotional content of your book and and the interweaving of memoir. Um, but I guess what I was after was just like the way you like sort of narrated your your own history, and then also in the book too. I was just curious if your your ideas about black citizenship shifted as you did did this sort of research work. Maybe you were prior to doing the research were, were as skeptical or sarcastic or pessimistic about America as you were, um, you know, as you are now. But I was, what I was more curious about, it's like, were you living some kind of life as like a black lawyer in New York working for, you know, what sounds like a fairly prestigious, if not very prestigious law firm? Did you have ideas about yourself as a black citizen that were disrupted by undertaking this sort of research, writing this book was was more of a question. And I don't, I'm not really, you know, I'm not trying to persuade you. <laughs> it, I, I really am genuinely curious because to me, like, if your mind did change after after reading this history, that's a to me that's an interesting kind of tension. If you were living a life and you had a certain understanding, and then you're like, well, I read this history and now i I feel differently. You know, to me, that's interesting.
0: Right. And, you know, so I think I think it was really honestly, it was really more of a platform to sort of discuss what were certain frustrations that I had, like long prior to writing this book, because I think, it's, you know, the law there's a lot of, you know, within the profession and definitely without the pr- profession or outside of the profession. Right. Um, there's a lot of faith and hope that these legal changes are going to sort of lead to some sort of paradigm shift in uh, society, right. Whether, um, you know, um, and, and it does, they, they do, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna downplay the importance of legal change, but, uh, l- yes, le- legal, changes do, uh, result in ch- a change in sort of outward behavior, right. Which we've all seen, but if the underlying sort of root causes and the sort of root motivations, that you know uh, necessitated some of these laws to be put into place in the first place aren't dealt with. There's a way in which you know the, you know they find yet they they will find yet another um, uh, sort of guise with through which to assert themselves. Or you know with the Insurrection Act, there are certain you know events that that arise and then sort of all of the older sort of un un. Um, addressed sort of issues, sort of find life once again, notwithstanding, you know, these formal entitlements, right? So I, I think that in a way, I, I became a much more um, confident about my underlying belief that it's really uh, people who have to change, you know, you can change laws, we can still push for that. But I think that the, there needs to be a balance um, toward, you know, actually looking at you know, frankly, our psychological makeup and profile and understanding how this history has sort of impressed upon us and conditioned us in certain ways uh, that, you know, will continue to sort of rear their heads and flare up notwithstanding the the formal entitlements, the formal freedoms and the, the sort of, you know, changes in law. So one example that everybody is, you know, talking about now is like this great replacement theory, right? How is that, how is that different from... You know the underlying anxiety uh, within within white society in certain antebellum um, during the antebellum pe- uh, period in slaveholding states about the population of you know the enslaved versus you know white citizens and the potential for some sort of you know insurrection to occur. You know, and uh, with you know g- keeping in mind you know the 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 tipping the tipping and balance of the number of you know black versus white in a given place right like that these are old anxieties right and, and and these anxieties as i discussed in the first chapter at least with respect to that particular issue um you know uh with you know respect to um not only the fear of of slave insurrection but also the fear of you know um you know uh black freedom you know just speaking very broadly it's like there 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 was a there seemed to be um, an inability to understand a quest for equality, right, um, as anything other than perhaps uh, um, a move to gain super- some sort of super- superiority or some sort of hierarch- uh, higher place in the hierarchy and enact revenge, right? These are these are underlying anxieties, right, and they don't necessarily disappear or go away because we have these changes in laws that's like they they find other forms and then they express themselves in seemingly uh new guises right so i i think i think you know yeah I, i don't i i don't think i necessarily changed in short but i know that i feel far more um convinced of you know the 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 hearts and minds problem that we have to put it to put it you know and uh, yeah you know, I guess Bill Clinton's words like you know you can change the law but are you changing hearts and minds right and how do we even do that that's the other thing I, I don't I'm not saying that's even necessarily uh, anybody's job or or possible but I think that's the core of the issue and I and I think that in a ways that we As a society, put a lot of a stake in the in laws and the political process to solve problems that need to be solved at a much deeper level and require a much more self awareness, self reflection, and reckoning—personal reckoning.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, I I think that's a, I think that's really interesting, just because you know the moment we're in, you know, uh, you know, I mean, you're using the language, you know, this is post racial reckoning, George Floyd. You know, every single country in the in the nation uh, saw protests. Um, you know, I, I wonder. I wonder. You know, you just sort of said that. You know, you're not sure that it's even possible. But I wonder what. I have several questions. I just. I wonder what 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 that would look like changing hearts and minds. And I also wonder what changing hearts and minds would mean for the most vulnerable Black populations. You know, like like after people change their minds if they, like they're the problem or if it's not just white people and you're seeing this in all non black people sort of after people sort of understand fully that black people are human and aren't gonna revenge themselves upon them, even though some black people I think do want to revenge <laughs> <themselves upon> them, <laughs> um, you know what's gonna right, happen right you know
0: right and and you know, but getting back to your point about this is is this sort of a fundamentally a trump book I just as a you know as a um a side point: You mentioned the George Floyd uh, uprisings, right? So, the Insurrection Act uh, came up once again when Donald Trump threatened to invoke it in order to suppress uh, the, you know, co- like the coincident riots and things like that that were occurring, you know, in places like Minneapolis. He also threatened New York directly. So, once again, you know, the you you know this act uh, comes about in a moment of you know, essentially, you know, black protest, right? And there's a question there about, you know, with the Insurrection Act, you know, being something that is, you know, authorized, you know, to be, you know, invoked by the president, whether at the request of the state governor or unilaterally, but nonetheless, it is through the eyes of that and in the heart and mind, right, of that president that we're seeing, you know, what uh, is warranted Uh, to be sort of declared as an insurrection or some sort of domestic violence that requires that kind of domestic use of military forces. Right. So on the one hand, yes, the, the, the uses of the insurrection act tell us a lot. It's like some sort of a mirror. It reflects our history back at us and tells us something very important about black citizenship. But in, in other cases, it also tells you something important about, you know, the, uh, the sort of heart and mind per se or the the, the, the lens or the gaze of the, the the sort of power brokers and what they see as insurrections and what they don't right so especially you know of course as everyone's currently talking about you have the you know the the you know this juxtaposition of Trump you know seeing seeing the insurrection act as warranted with respect to the George Floyd uprisings you know and then you know with respect with respect to January 6th you know, um, not, you know, whether or not it was opportunistic, you know, I don't know, you know, like what, what was specifically underlying this decision not to call forth, you know, uh, the, the DC guard sooner rather than later in order to deal with the, the storming of the Capitol. But, uh, you know, you, you, start to see the, in these patterns, like what isn't like, uh, what's considered an insurrection and what's not ultimately, is in in the in the eye of the beholder, and that's where you start to get into these sort of deeper hearts and minds mind issues, right? Because it's not there's not it's not an objective uh, uh, designation. There's a lot of subjectivity that comes into play with it. So, uh, were you going to respond to that
1: one point? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it? a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: Um, no, I, I don't think so. I mean, I, I hear what you're saying and I, and I understand it. Um, Yeah, I I think I'm still curious about, you know, all these. Well, this is like a compelling part of your book and it's and it's just it's it is just about how you think about politics. um, Right. Because it's like even people know that maybe what happened on January 6th was an insurrection and did warrant, let's say, an insurrection act. Um, You know, politically, it doesn't make sense to say so. Especially not in public, you know what I mean. And so, I, I, you know, for me, you know, the question of hearts and minds is, is an interesting one. But I still wonder, at the end of the day, you know, how does how, how does that give black people more money? For black people, more money, you know what I mean, um, or something like that. But. You know, I mean, that's a complicated conversation. What I do want to ask about is just, you know, you you assemble a a great many sort of historians in your writing, right? You sort of reference a really broad range of African-American historians, mostly in your book. And I was just curious about, about how your knowledge of the law sort of affects your approach to, to history, because I do think it's unique and I do think it's um, valuable. And I wonder if you have your own sort of feel for that as you were sort of reading these writers and then sort of writing your own sort of understanding of American history.
0: Right. And I will answer that question. But first, I do want to you know make sure I answer your first question was about the, you know, how is changing these hearts and minds going to actually help people and specific, specifically Black people, right? And I, when I completely agree with you that this is This is not necessarily a prescription. It's more of a conundrum that I'm pointing out because (laughs) there's no way that I would, I would, I would, or advise anyone to wait around for anyone to change their heart or their mind for you to live your life the way you want to live it, right? That's, or, or to aspire to do it or to take action, to do it, or to, you know, continue to, um, you know, make your own personal progress. I, that, that I'm not, I I would never advocate that. And I didn't, I'm not saying that we need to put uh, everything on hold, you know, for certain people to sort of engage in their sort of, in the sort of personal reckoning, which is sorely needed. So that, that is, that's number one. However, number two is that we, you know, we, there's a way in which we we're living with this, our, our linked fates, right? We're not, we're not islands. We have to live, with, and and around, you know, or, or within a society, in which you know the way we are perceived, you know, is going to have some amount of impact on us, you know, on a day-to-day basis, right? How you how one navigates that is 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 like not not really the outside-in issue where you have like the laws and you have like the pers- the, the, the 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 prescription. That's more of an inside-out issue. And and getting back to your earlier point about, you know, the amount of progress that has been made. I don't in any way want to downplay the sort of innovation, creativity, strength, um, brilliance of so many, uh, you know, people who have come before me, like so many Black activists, so many uh, people in the Black community throughout history, who have, despite all of everything that's going on, right? Uh, And, you know, despite it, in spite of it, have sort of marshaled, you know, the courage and, um, their wherewithal to, you know, to create a sort of narrative trajectory that, uh, sort of transcends, you know, the impositions of law and the impositions of history. Right. So I, I, I don't, I don't want to downplay that at all. And I, and I think really when I'm being in my sort of sarcasm about progress and my pessimism about, uh, about law, it's really about trying to highlight, uh, the the um, limitations of law in in regards to this subject, especially considering that when we're talking about black citizen black citizenship and and civil and you know civil rights etc, the law has played such a major role in what we think of as that progress, right? So I'm I'm just sort of chiming in with a slightly different take that tries to complicate this once again, right? So you know, so that's number one. Um, and I think you were just asking me, uh, Could you, would you mind?
2: Sure. And I, you know, I appreciate you saying that. No, I'm just, you know, I'm asking questions just because I think, I think it's interesting to hear what you would have to say. Um, and because I think, I think these are ideas that a lot of people have, you know, that, that we need to just keep engaging in racial reckonings. And um, I feel like, well, you know, racial attitudes change, right? I mean, even even across the Obama and Trump presidencies and not even how you would expect, right? Like racial racism that was going down. I mean, I know there are a bunch of racial incidents going up, but actually if you look at polling, right, the same polling that they do every year, if you trust Gallup poll that they've done since whatever, like the sixties, it continues to go down, um, sort of various kinds of racial prejudice. They, they measured across a ton of indices. And so I guess, you know, it's, it's, I guess, you know, I do hear what you're saying about the law and I think it's absolutely right that it's not the only thing that will secure black freedom. Um, but I don't think it's either like it's the law or it's hearts and minds. Right. There are right, so many right, other. Right, right. that exist in the world. Right. 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 Yeah. No, I mean, what you just said about, you know, link living with link fates like I think that and I think even racist white people, there's something more important to their racism sometimes. Right. Like, not, that's not the most important thing to them all of the time. Um, so to me, that the, the social history is so dynamic, so fluid. So are people's self-understandings. And I think we're just in a moment where people are primed to think that anyone else getting something is me not getting something. Right. I think the zero-sum
0: right? game. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Across
2: races and, and classes and people in America right now. And I don't think that that's good, given our, our linked fakes, as you named um, but my question was, and so I don't want you to feel like I'm, I'm I'm coming after you. I'm more just trying to see, I'm more just trying to understand your book. Oh, uh, no, I get
0: it. No, I, and I didn't, okay. I just wanted to make sure I made that point, even just for myself, because, you know, it is a very specific kind of book and it's not, you know, it's the, it, because it's about history and because it's about law and I use my personal narrative to sort of, um, and, you know, various other, you know, sort of, you know, uh, you know, discussions, philosophical and whatnot. Because I use them to um, sort of highlight, you know, the roles that this has played with respect to Black citizenship. It's a very, it's not the sort of book that you know is necessarily, um, you know, focused on, uh, you know, the the creative potential of the individual. And I, w- which I completely and wholeheartedly believe in, especially given, you know, my pessimism about. <laughs> <laughs> about securing quote unquote freedom through these other mechanisms, right? So yeah, but I so I do appreciate that. And I know you were asking me about, you know, the the range of historians now. Now I remember the range of historians that I read about.
2: And how your um, own approach, uh, how your own approach to writing history might differ from, you know, what we would call like a traditional historian. Exactly, you know?
0: exactly. So I I the history basically opened up before me through the law because this is how I found um you know the historical events was by looking at the presidential proclamations and the subsequent executive orders related to the insurrection act so i would see you know that there was this proclamation i would see you know that it looked like the insurrection act then i would go and see well what was going on at this time <laughs> when when this uh, like why like what was the the incident in some cases it was very is very apparent right especially once we got into the 20th century and beyond and my sub my, my knowledge of you know the the various uh, historical events were pretty concrete but going further back i really relied heavily on you know the in particular on uh you know books about um you know the uh about, about slavery basically. Right. And then also books about the civil war. And so I, in a, in a way as, as in writing the book, I, I don't necessarily proclaim to be an authority on this history, but uh, on this history, but more so a sort of explorer of it myself. Right. And I think um, in that way uh, it, it was, it was really sort of um it was really sort of a, a dynamic process because I waited, I, I waded into the history through through the law, right, and then took what I found, and and then sort of uh, saw this pattern emerging, right, and saw you know the these themes, these common themes that, that continue to repeat through and echo throughout this sort of selected history. Um, so I I don't know if that's something that would you know work with other um sort of pieces of legislation I'm sure that I'm sure it could um, um, I I mean I think I think this could it's, it's, it's actually it's it's ultimately like an exercise in in my particular case in classical critical race theory like taking a look at you know something that is you know a piece of legislation it's seemingly uh, uh you know uh racially neutral but nonetheless you see like the disparate impacts that it has. Um, you know, so, I mean, in that way that it is sort of a classical, you know, sort of critical race theory, the old critical race theory, not the new one that everyone's arguing about on <laughs> the school boards, the one that I remember learning about in law school. I don't know what the, I don't know. I honestly still don't know what the new critical race history or critical race theory is. Um, it, it, it seems like more of a buzzword, uh, and, uh, than anything tangible, but, Okay.
2: Well, I wonder I wonder maybe sort of thinking about that and then thinking about, you know, sort of our earlier conversation where you were talking about um the kind of emotional life undergirding American politics, American law, um and our linked fates. You spend a lot of time t- thinking about and thinking through, you know, the the psyches of of white folks um in your book and I was curious about about how you might think about black psyches and, 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 and what, uh, as a result of this history that, that you're tracing. Cause I was just curious. I mean, you name, you have this one incident where you sort of say, you know, I felt shame, you know, when, when I was a young person on long Island and all these little white kids were staring at me as my teacher, like, you know, talked about slavery. Um, but I wonder, I wonder what else might be there. And I, and I wonder because, you know, I I wonder, I just feel like it's a, it's a, mm-hmm. it's a useful thing to think about. That's a good,
0: that is a, that is a great question. And I'm glad you picked up on that because um, in the, you know, throughout I was really, I really ended up doing a sort of, um, sort of creating a psycho- psychological profile of, you know, white Americans. <laughs> I'm glad <laughs> you picked up on that.
2: <laughs> yeah, I definitely yeah. do
0: that um but and and you're and I know um in terms of the like you're talking about the black psyche right like one thing cause I, I think it's because I'm I just a, just a, you know in part the in the in part one answering you know this question the part the first part of answering this question, I think it's, it was useful for me to just flip everything around. Right. Cause I, I have a, I, I was a sociology major as an undergraduate. So a lot of the studies, you know, that I sort of engaged with, it was a sort of, you know, um, uh, you know, these, these sort of qualitative explorations of, you know, black people living, you know, in, you know, the underclass or whatever, you know, these kinds of, these kinds of, you know, things where it's like, okay, it's like, you know, like these, these sort of deep dives and they ended up being, you know, somewhat pathologizing and, um, you know, not necessarily intentionally, but it's just like, why, why is, why is it the, the black person is is always under this microscope and people trying to figure out what's going on with you? Why are you sitting in this this, uh, place at the school table, at the lunch table and not this other place? It's all, it's always, you know, uh, always right. But there, it it seems like there's been a, a, a sort of, um, you know, uh, uh, a sort of pathologizing of, of, you know, blackness and then the sort of the the sort of whiteness has its its sort of this neutral default sort of you know almost like a spectral non-existence it's just taken you know for granted like air or something like that so in a way i i I figured well you know at some point i talk about double consciousness right w.e.b du bois's you know famous you know talk uh, discussion about the uh, black person and double consciousness seeing themselves through their own eyes and through the eyes through which they're being judged and scrutinized and i flipped it and i said well maybe that's because the people who are or uh you know un- under whose gaze we are uh, you know dealing with his double double consciousness have double vision right so and that double vision is like sort of you can see it oscillating at least through the lens of the insurrection act where the black citizen you know is both you know refugee and you know resident right and then in the case of Cur- hurricane katrina both object and subject of the law it's like these sort of older remnants um you know even uh, both citizen and non-citizen at the same time in a way in the way in which uh you know we're viewed i think mitch mcconnell recently sort of came under some sort of brief uh you know media fire for talking about how african americans you know, uh, vote or do something, you know, just as much as regular Americans, something like that. I forget, I forget, uh, you know, the exact, uh, wording, but I, I think the, the, the phraseology he used, you know, could imply that he didn't see black people, black Americans as citizens. Right. So in any case, so yeah, so I, I, so I do spend a lot of time sort of maybe flip reversing this sort of, uh, gaze, Right. And, and so for, for, I guess for me, that was just like a, you know, in a way, it's like a sort of a a, a correction, a correction, I think, to a lot of the other literature that I would tend to engage with, with respect to, you know, looking at black people in United States, right, as a block, which we are not, obviously, but, you know, so I flipped it, and I was looking the other way, right? That's number one. Um, But number two, thinking about the black psyche, um, you know, I don't. Get into it too much into the in the book, but I think through my own personal narrative, I feel like that at least is is you know a, an insight into sort of selected chapters of my life and like my my engagement with uh, some of this material um, that I think kind of adds that you know adds at least adds some of that perspective in, even if it's not like a you know I'm not theorizing. Um, but m- most importantly, I think the the personal narrative part was not only there to sort of consider cer- certain frustrations that I that I felt as you know a, the only black kid in the in the class, and you know as a black lawyer at the, the at the law firm or what, whatever the various scenarios were, but also to. Um, discuss like the the attempts to sort of chart your own narrative trajectory despite all of these frustrations right so it wasn't it wasn't necessarily like a heartwarming personal narrative by any means and it was very uh somewhat choppy right because it's like it's not like a a sort of uh a, a sort of uh you know uh, chronological memoir per se. It's like they're they're more so anecdotes and and you know small asides and things like that. But nonetheless, I think my my ultimate point was you know to to think about you know the the progression of you know think about this progress more so in individual terms, in terms about your creating a narrative for yourself that transcends the narratives that we've inherited. And through which we are um, perceived, and uh, you know that we're we're continually battling against, right? I think that that was my ultimate point in the end about that. Um, and I don't know if it really has to do specifically with you know the black psyche, but I think it's more about the the black journey, right? It's like you know this sort of you know engaging in various tactics to sort of, you know, fully express your, your human potential, not, notwithstanding all of these sort of constructed barriers in your way. Right. Like that's, that's the journey. Right. And it's a very, very, it's a very rewarding, I think journey in the end, because it's ultimately, it's like, it's more internal, right. It's something that I think, um, you know, like I, I, I in the beginning of the book, I do talk a, a little bit about the master-slave dial- dialectic, and the fact there's this trans transformation that Hegel, you know, talks about, you know, theorized about, where the enslaved person, you know, or the bondsman he calls him, sort of undergoes this sort of transmutation of fear, and then elevates into courage, right? But in the meantime, the lord or the master, um, you know. It, is not really going undergoing that sort of transformation and and the, the the sense of self of that master is linked to the 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 enslavement or the the the, the sort of structural inferiority of the bondsman or the enslaved person, right? Whereas uh, in that in that small sort of uh, scenario, it's the enslaved person who sort of becomes, you know, sort of more fully realized in themselves and in their humanity in their empathy, in their courage, right? Um, So there's something to be said about that. Um, And I think that quip, I was sort of alluding to that aspect of, you know, the black psyche. Like there's like a sort of of internal transformation that then sort of spurs, you know, this motivation to sort of keep going despite all of the nonsense, right?
2: Yeah, I will say, you know, I really enjoyed the incorporation of a personal narrative um, throughout your book and just sort of learning more about, you know, your sort of life as a, as a lawyer. Um, and I thought it was useful and, and interesting. The reason why I asked the question about, is there like a corresponding psychological profile for black folks? It's just 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 because there is one for white people. And so I wonder, you know, if this history is, is inherited and it's sort of affecting white people in a way that 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 we can talk about in a general sense, I wonder if the same thing is true of black people. Um, but given what you just said, I mean, one thing I'm curious about is if you do think that double consciousness still sort of defines the experience of being black in the United States. Like, is that something you experience? I ask my students this all the time, it's a favorite okay, question. Okay, interesting, mine. interesting. Um, and I just, I wonder, I wonder if, I, I think they might, right? And that's really complicated, right? Because of our current moment and it's sort of priming of race and throughout the culture, right? That has to be a central question for every single social interaction. And so as racial attitudes have changed in my lifetime, certainly in yours, in ways that I don't know are productive and I don't know necessarily have to do with history, which is why I think this co- question of 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 uh social history so hard right um because even what you're saying about sociology and it's it tends to like study poor black people for example even though most black people aren't poor even in this country um so you know a part of what is studied is, is because of money you know how how universities are funded people want to hear about and people don't want to hear about middle-class black people even black people don't want to hear about that So it's, that's something. um but anyway i you know i do wonder do you Double consciousness? Is that something you experience? I'm just curious because class to me is so important and it's not the only thing that's important, but I find when we talk about Black people, it, it, no one wants to bring it up as if we oh, all experience right. the same things. And we don't. Right,
0: right, right, right. Well, there, there's like a one sort of I mean, class definitely exacerbates or sort of softens certain kinds of exposures to, you know, racism, right? So, you know, uh, not everybody can afford to quit their job because they're fed up with how they're being treated at work, <laughs> right? That's number one. I mean, but there, there, there are tons of, of different examples. Very, and I'm very aware in which, uh, the way in which, you know, when we talk about race or we talk about Black people, white people, it's, it's just such a, you know, it's such a general, as it's such a generalized conversation. And frankly, I, I do actually believe that you know literature, you know is the best way of getting around this because we just need to explore the individual psyche and various permutations as much as possible to and you know to enhance our journey towards self-awareness, right? These like big you know conversations, right they' they're you know they're they, they're useful to to a certain extent, but then they become very um, sort of limiting and you know, uh, you know, stereo- they stereotype people in, in in various ways that are not that are not useful. So I agree with that. But in terms of double consciousness, do I think it still defines me? um Or just how you
2: experience the world and view the world yourself? You experience consciousness as a black person in the United States. I'm just curious. You know, it's not well, a. I,
0: think it's, I a- think it's it's like the double consciousness. It's like there's a way in which you know it can be sort of interpreted as you know like a hyper self-consciousness which maybe is it, it's it's how it's experienced maybe at first like when you're trying to navigate you know the experience of you know being yourself and then being perceived in certain ways that clash with that and you know trying to figure out how to you know sort of hold those two experiences together at the same time but i would think after time at least for me i would it's it's not you know some sort of paralyzing experience it's just something that is sort of you know in my it's it's like tucked away in my awareness this idea that yes i am me but nonetheless you know uh i'm sure people have ideas about what what that is and it, you know that are going to differ from those the idea that i have right and i'm i'm you know so i i guess i would definitely say yes but i i don't i don't it's certainly not some sort of neurotic experience. It's like, it's not like you're crying every night, <laughs> breaking down. <laughs> it's more of like a, it, if anything, I think it's, 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 it's actually, you know, when you, when you think about, you know, it's more sort of spiritual texts, right? Like the idea is to sort of develop a, an observer consciousness, right? So you're not just your ego, you know, out there doing things without having any sense of how it's being experienced or perceived by others, right? Like you're, you're the, you, you're supposed to sort of detach and identify more with, you know, the entity that observes the ego, the entity that observes your mind, the entity that observes your body moving through the world. Right. So it's, I think actually it's, it's fundamentally sort of like a, a step on the path to some sort of, um, you know, uh, transcendence, which is actually very useful just in general as a human being walking the earth. Um, And, you know, perhaps, you know, racism has given black people a head start.
2: Yeah. No. For sure. You know. Yeah. I mean, it's not that I don't think that you know white people are out here giving black people looks. It's just I'm curious <laughs>
1: about
2: what the response to it is in the 21st century. You know what I mean? Because like you know, even at my own job, I'll get on the elevator sometimes, and if I'm dressed casually, you know, we'll get we'll get some rude coldness. And I'm always mm-hmm. just thinking, like, look at these white people, and then I stop thinking about it. It's just like. <laughs> it's it's a second it's just like i don't care get my money
0: and then i just go to work exactly and that's and that's like the it's like there's a process in which it becomes a little much more automatic it becomes less triggering and it certainly is not going to be something that you know needs to like define the rest of your day right you know so yeah
2: and it's just like i mean i hope that they're looking at me funny because i'm on this elevator too you know Anyway, I, that's why I was curious about it because double consciousness. It's so it's so tragic, and I'm just like I don't know that I'm ever thinking about how a white person looks at me, and if I am, it's funny. I'm just right, like I right, hope right. You know, I'm a drug
0: dealer, just up but it's on this like There's a way in which it's like you can't you can't not be aware of it, you know, because it's almost like a, it's a survival instinct to be aware right? In, in these streets, not, not, you know, I'm not trying to like, you know, exaggerate, right. I'm not saying I'm in fear for my life. Every, every day I walk the streets, it's not, it's not quite like that, but you know, it's like, it's like, you, you know, you can't, you can't be completely unself aware. I don't think as a black person in it, you know, on this earth, maybe, you know, certainly not in this country. I just don't think, cause I think it's, that's, it's dangerous. I actually do think it's dangerous socioeconomically as well as you know um you, you know physically even right it's like there's it but, but it's but it's not like you said it's definitely not tragic i i kind of see it more as a superpower right like in the, the the first chapter where i talk about code switching right that's that's what this is it's like the, the ability to sort of you know adapt you know it's sort of like you know be like a bit of a chameleon kind of be like a trickster sort of like shift and sort of move in, into different positions in order to sort of kind of navigate whatever's coming at you right it's i think it's it yeah it certainly doesn't have to be tragic it doesn't have to be feel about like neurotic and like neurotic or like woe is me right i certainly not you know
2: Well, I want to, I want to share a Hilton House quote with you. It's just one of my faves. And then I want you to just tell us, you know, tell listeners about what they're going to learn if they go out and buy insurrection. But the quote is uh, it's one of my faves, which I always keep in mind. It says for black people, being around white people is sometimes like taking care of babies. You don't like babies who throw up on you again and again, but whom you cannot punish because they're babies. So anyway, so can you give our, our, our listeners, uh, I don't know, just maybe a last take on, you know, what they're going to learn uh, when they buy insurrection?
0: Well, I think, you know, the 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 term has definitely become almost overused now with, uh, you know, the emphasis on the ongoing January 6th sort of e- explorations, et cetera. So, you know, it's both a blessing and a curse, right? It's like on the one hand, there's like guerrilla marketing for the book because the word has become a household name. But on the other hand, what I will say is that, you know, there is a sort of, like you said, there is, this is sort of like a Trump era book in, in a sense, right? Given the timing of it, given a lot of the um, the, the themes that, that that are discussed that are, that are you know, occurred around that, that administration and shortly beforehand, to the extent that Trump was a, was a, was a, a a reaction, a negative reaction to Barack Obama and, and, you know, but um, I think if you pick up the book, you're going to learn about a lot more than the insurrection act. I think it's really more so about uh, the relationship of, you know, the citizen or even just the person in society to the law. Um, It's about, uh, you know, one's relationship to authority, right. And where that authority is, is it something that um, you know is is uh, solely solely enshrined by the state. Is it something that is internal? Um, is it something that is linked to some sort of you know some sort of religious externality? Right. There are different ways in which we place our authority, in, uh, you know, in various uh, positions, you know, vis a vis vis a vis ourself. Right. And I think ultimately uh, th- this book. Is I think something that can be read by anyone who is interested in that fundamental question, and I think black citizen, black citizenship is just you know a sort of uh, you know the the sort of sterling example of this of this sort of tension of authority and where you find it, and um, you know how you challenge it, right? And I think that's a question that everyone should be asking themselves regardless of, you know, whether they think they're in a sort of preferred sort of situation, you know, uh, vis-a-vis the state and its deputies.
2: All right. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for
0: this interview. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun.